Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi, and welcome to Life Out Loud, where we make stories and stories make us. Today we are celebrating and also kind of mourning um, the end of our first season. So this is episode six entitled My Brother's Shadow. And to celebrate and also mourn, <laughs> we kind of have everyone here. Like we couldn't decide on two hosts, so we just brought in everybody. We just brought in the big guns. Um, so you guys know me. I'm Karen. And um, let's just go around and kind of say our names and introduce ourselves again. I'm Samantha. I'm Maoli. I'm Karina, y'all. And I'm Steven. Steven is new. I bet you guys were surprised to hear a male voice. <laughs> We've been trying to get a male perspective for some time, but I don't know. We're just free all the time. It's just how schedules line up. So tonight, in our last episode of season one, we're featuring pieces that deal in some way with older brothers and the sides of them that only younger siblings have seen. So our first writer for tonight, performing his piece, La Llorona, is actually one of our hosts. Our very own Steven de la Cruz is here. How are you, Steven? Pretty good. Excited to be here. Good. I'm excited to uh, introduce you with this awesome bio. Um, <laughs> so Steven de la Cruz is a New York native. He's currently an English major at John Jay and works with an integrated co-teaching classroom in an elementary school in Queens. It was here that he realized he wants to be a teacher. He hopes to travel in the future and learn local legends, myths, and more from the places he hopes to visit. When he isn't writing or cramming for an exam, you'll find him buried in a book, possibly rereading his favorite novel, Catch-22. If he's not spending time with friends and family, he's saving some town or city with friends in their weekly Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Let's take a listen to La Llorona. On my first day working for the Sherry Netherland Hotel in Manhattan, my 32-year-old brother, Max, was found dead in his apartment. He died in his sleep. After two weeks off for the funeral, I went back for my second day of work. They threw me into the freight elevator, one the cleaning staff, construction workers, and delivery men take, and left me to manage it. I wasn't sure why I was even there, because the elevator operated itself if I left on automatic. When I took the job, the woman who hired me told me I would be covering for various employees as they took their vacations. I would cover different positions, she said. Temporary work, she said. There was a chance I could become permanent, she said, if I played my cards right. I never left that elevator once during the summer of 2014. It became clear soon enough that the extent of my job was to check if people had a pass from the timekeeper before they entered the lift, and then to make sure that they went to the floor listed on their pass. You know, so their existence on a floor on which they weren't summoned to wouldn't end up inconveniencing any wealthy residents or guests. Hey, you're Juanito from the Kitchens Kid, right? My shift supervisor, Pete, asked as he strained out his tie. I nodded, meekly. He held out his worn-out baseball glove of a handout to me, and I shook it. Welcome to the Sherry. Your dad is good people. I've known him for a long time, and your uncle, El Tigre, too. He continued. 
When we reached the fourth floor, he turned around and looked at me. I heard about your brother. I'm sorry for your loss, but if you need anything, let me know. Thank you, I muttered as I closed the doors. Two weeks into the job, I found myself in the elevator with one of the night shift maids. He was probably old enough to be my mother. She had a small nose that reminded me of a beak, pouty lips, and long, curly black tresses. She was pretty, but I wondered how beautiful she had been when she was my age. I gave her one of my measured smiles, the one that meant, hello, the one that only showed the tips of my teeth, the one that I had spent years perfecting as I hate when I smile and my lips pull back to expose my gums too much, the one that made me look like a smiling idiot, or so someone had told me once in middle school. She returned the smile and asked, so you're the new guy, right, Glenn? I shook my head and said, no, Glenn is the other new guy. My name is Steven. Great. She'll probably call me Glenn every now and then, just like my mom used to do when she'd call me Max before he died, I thought. Steven. Steven. She repeated my name a few more times before continuing. Now I should never forget it. I'm Sylvia. She kept her word and never forgot my name. She beamed me a huge smile that was completely genuine. Part of me knew she didn't have to rehearse in front of a mirror to get it down, to make it look so natural, so wonderfully natural and perfect. I was so fixated on her smile that I hadn't realized that she had put her hand out. I hastily shook her hand when I finally saw it. Sorry, I muttered in embarrassment as the doors opened up to her floor and she told me she'd catch me later. Many of the other men seemed to dote on Sylvia, and I'd secretly laugh at them when she paid them no mind. She'd sneak me a couple gourmet chocolates every day, and she'd talk to me about her kids, my plans for the future, and life in general. I assumed someone must have told her about my brother, and she was just doing this to make herself feel better. She said I reminded her a lot of her son. She was at least twice my age. One day, Sylvia left her iPhone with me. She knew I always had my charger because there was an outlet in the elevator and because, well, my phone needed juice if I was going to distract myself from the sounds I thought I heard in this metal coffin. Do you mind charging this for me? She asked gently. I'll even throw in some extra chocolates. She showed me her phone with a sly grin that made her instantly lose almost 10 years. I didn't see any reason why not. I plugged it in as she left. It was weird to be alone in the elevator with something new. Something that wasn't me. Something that wasn't mine. Something that wouldn't leave in the 22 seconds it took to get to the next floor. I stared at it. It was a regular iPhone 5 but she had this girly and hip pink rubber case that I assumed must have been a gift for one of her daughters. As I continued to examine her phone, I accidentally hit something that got me to her home screen. Her home screen was a picture of her with a young guy in his 30s who looked a lot like her with the same beak-like nose and lips. Beneath that, it said, slide to unlock. Whoa, her phone had no passcode? I wonder if she even knew that she could lock it with a passcode or if she was just one of those people who trusted everyone. I put the phone down to avoid the temptation. If she caught me looking through this, that would be the end. She was the only one who spoke to me normal anymore, almost like my friends did before my brother died. Now they ask, are you okay? How are you holding up? Want to talk about it? No, I'd scream back at them in my head. I don't, okay? Why can't things just be like they were before? I think a lot about the way things were before, during some of my worst moments in that elevator, the moments when the noises of the hotel came to a sudden halt. The first time it happened, I stood inside the elevator of the third floor because it was nice and cool there. The Siegel family owned that floor, 
and they kept the vents on full blast during the summer. I closed my eyes, my head against the cool metal of the elevator, and drank in the silence. I thought of Mr. Lippman, the man who owned the entirety of the 17th floor, and yelled at his two personal chefs for having the audacity to talk to one another in an adjacent room while he enjoyed his meal. His parents or grandparents surely had worked hard to earn that silence for him. When the silence came for me, though, I thought of my brother, Max. He had just moved out from our family's three-bedroom apartment in Williamsburg, and I had moved into his tiny room that barely fit my bed. What's it like in the new apartment? How's the baby? How's Diana? What are you doing right now? I'd pepper him with questions, not really giving him much time to answer in between. I was in disbelief that he was gone, that he'd really moved out. He laughed and made a choking sound. That's when I finally noticed he had hiccups. I'd asked him if he wanted something to drink, and he nodded. I jumped up from the dining table and grabbed the container with my mom's iced tea. So sweet, it would make my teeth ache when I got older. In my haste, I grabbed the top of the plastic container and not the base. It smashed onto the floor. I knew my mom's ears had caught the sound of several pints of liquid splashing onto the ground. I knew because I heard her old mattress squeak as she sat up to put on her old leather chancletas that smacked against the soles of her feet as she walked. The same sound they made when she hit me with them on my hands or, or legs whenever I made a mess. I sat there staring at the brownish droplets smeared across the kitchen. The dread set in and my vision became blurry through the incoming tears. My brother stood up and put his hand on my shoulder. His stubby brown fingers like the cigars he would later come to enjoy. Don't cry, bro. You're almost 12. You're going to be a man soon. I wiped the tears and watched silently as he explained to our mom that he'd dropped the container. She said nothing to him and made him more tea. I was stationed in a different elevator the first time I cracked and went through Sylvia's phone. My elevator had broken down the night before, and so I got put on a new one. It was identical to mine down to the faded carvings on the wall that resembled tally marks, except that one of the rails in the elevator was bent downward. One of the bellhops explained that Larry... The 67-year-old operator whose elevator it was held on to that rail every single day, all day long, because he had two busted knees. He was old enough to retire, but continued coming every day, continued holding that pole. By the end of his shift, his legs shook like jackhammers, and his sweat was entrenched in the thick worry lines on his forehead. He'd been here for t over 20 years, and I doubted he could last another. I was gripping the rail too that night, tightly, like Larry. I hoped that it would give my aching feet a break when Sylvia and the other two maids pushed their carts inside. The other maids were old enough to be my grandmother. One was hunched over and had a thick accent I hardly understood, and the other was tall and rigid, with the same thick accent. They only seemed to understand each other. Sylvia hung in the back as the two women chattered amongst themselves, and she rolled her eyes at them, then winked at me. I couldn't help but smile as I stifled a chuckle. She saw me smiling, and she gave me one of her own, a smile that was somewhere between triumph and joy. Why did she smile like that? How can she smile like that? She got off last and left her phone in my care again, along with a thank you gift of chocolates. I was only three hours into my shift, with four and a half more hours of my sentence left to serve. When I started fumbling with Sylvia's phone, I held it and paused, listening closely. I didn't want anyone to see me browsing a bright pink iPhone that was, most obviously, not mine. She had a missed call and some unread texts, I saw, which made me freeze. 
I didn't want to accidentally click one and have her notice that someone other than her had been through her phone. So I didn't touch the text. I almost put it down entirely, but I didn't. I looked through all of her apps and the book she had on there. But then someone rang the elevator and I jumped as it began its descent. After the shock faded, I tried to return the phone to its original condition. I hastily closed it and put it in my pocket, almost dropping it. Trying to act natural, like I hadn't just been snooping through my coworker's phone, I tried to calm my breath. The camera! I suddenly thought to myself. I turned around to look at the camera above me. Was someone watching me right now? Did they know? I fixed my shirt and wiped the sweat from my glistening forehead. When the doors opened, I was greeted by one of the residents, and we chatted casually about how hot it was. They got off on the ground floor, and I finally exhaled. I couldn't wait to finish my shift that day because tomorrow I would start my new schedule. I was working only four days a week now. I'd lied to my supervisor and said I would be attending college and needed less days. The truth was, I was on a break. One that was supposed to last just one semester, but was verging on two years. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I thought of Max again, how we sat in his living room talking one day, and how he shifted the conversation towards college. He'd asked me what I want to do. I don't know. I want to teach, but I don't think I'll make much. I responded while staring at the frosty glass in my hands. Do what makes you happy. It'll work out. I know you can do anything, Stephen, he said confidently. When I opened my eyes, I was back in my cell, still holding the rails because my feet hurt. Max is wrong about you. You can't fucking do anything. Useless. The deepest reaches of my mind whisper. I scan the elevator. The walls. The dull silver walls seem too close. Get back, I want to scream at them. The sound of my heart is almost deafening until I hear the brakes scream to a halt. They sound like my mother's screams the day Max died. They had gone on and on and on, her screams, and I'd felt bad about thinking, just stop it, just shut the fuck up, I'm your son too, I'm still here, but I'm not the son you need, or want, I knew I would never be enough, knew that I could never fill the hole. I clocked in and out, out and in, in and out of that tomb for the next several weeks, Days swirled together. I was lonely, sad, tired, out of breath. I would think of my brother in his white and gold coffin, how small it must have felt in there. Thought about the time he had one of his first seizures in front of me, how I'd sat by him until it finally stopped, gently stroking his hair like my mom used to do to me when I snuck into her bed at night, tears creating dark pools onto my sweatpants. Once, I cried like that on this very elevator, but then I'd gotten it together just in time to see Sylvia. On the day I'd cried, Sylvia got on ten minutes after I had finished. Her black hair glimmered under the fluorescent lights. She didn't say anything, but she put her hand on my cheek and gently stroked it like those doting parents on TV do. Then, she slipped some chocolates into my hand with her long, spindly fingers, smiled, and got off on Lippman's floor. And I just stood there the warmth of her hand lingering on my cheek even after she was gone. I shifted in my pants in an attempt to hide what her hand on my cheek had done. The day after, on my day off, Evelina, my girlfriend, came over. She hadn't even taken her jacket off when I grabbed her and started kissing her. She laughed. You're awfully aggressive today. Missed me? She teased. I nodded and guided her to my room, turning off the lights. 
Her blonde hair looked almost black in the darkness. Sylvia sighed as she checked a room off her list of assignments one afternoon as we went up to the 34th floor. She told me that the two girls that used to live there would leave their clothes littered on the floor, uneaten food and plates strewn in and around the sink, and that more than once she had found used condoms and bloody panties on the floor. It was the first time I ever heard her complain about anything. She sighed once more, and I waited, wanting her to touch my face again. Instead, she handed me chocolates and her phone. As I thought of her cleaning up other people's filth for the rest of the day, I nearly forgot about the phone until it started buzzing and slowly slid off the rail where it lay and onto the dirty elevator mat. Who was calling her? Why did I care? Before I could even think about the answers to these questions, it was already happening. I was looking through her pictures. She had over 800 pictures and videos. There were many photos of her son. It was clear he had won several awards, had a lot of friends, and seemed pretty cozy with his family. We were nothing alike. And the way she looked at her husband in some of the pictures? What was that? I've never seen my mom and dad look at each other like that. It had to be an act. Her life couldn't be this perfect. It couldn't be. Where was her dirty laundry? There was no way she just dealt with other people's shit in this hellhole of a hotel. No. I'm sure Sylvia and her husband argued like my mom and dad would when I was younger. My dad would come in late at night completely drunk and my mother would say he stunk of other women and they'd scream at one another well past midnight and I'd hide under the covers silently as I measured my breaths hoping I didn't make any noise. Even when one of my arms fell asleep, I didn't dare to move an inch. Did Sylvia scream at her husband? Did he drink, cheat, lie, owe people money that they'd break into their house to get? Would she scream at him for this? Would she scream, Maldito Aqueroso, go back to your whore? Would Sylvia scream like mom, like mom had screamed herself hoarse when she lost her favorite child? Would she do that? Huh? Would she? Would she tear her throat apart calling to someone who couldn't hear her anymore? And if she did... Would her other son be filled with an unexplained rage and mounted each and every time he heard her? Would he sit in the darkness of his tiny queen's room or in the tiny tin can of an elevator and evaluate his life, wish that it had been him instead? Would he feel angry at his mom for haunting him with the tears and merciless screams that would unravel the patchwork of lies that he had told himself, that that his mother loved all of them equally, even when she called him by his brother's name almost every day? Even when he went to comfort her as she wailed that she wanted her son back, wasn't he her son too? At the funeral, would he wrap his arms around his mother and slowly realize that she's not returning his embrace? Instead, would she stand up and break the desperate circle he created in an attempt to smother her sorrow and stifle her sounds? Would she stare at her favorite son in his coffin, screaming again in front of everyone? Would he begin to hate his own brother for being loved the most, for being the favorite, for dying, for making it so that no one else could die too, for taking that, for making it so that no one else could ever, ever leave the family the way he had, even when we wanted to? I smeared the tears from my eyes and I looked down at the pink iPhone in my hand, which is now covered in tears. I wiped the screen against my pants and it scrolls to the next picture, It's one of Sylvia's son being hugged by a woman with a curly black sea of hair that covers her face. But I don't need to see her face. I know it belongs to Sylvia. Her son looks overjoyed. He has his mother's smile, that which I'm sure is present underneath all that hair. 
this picture is perfect. I think Sylvia is a perfect mother, and her son, who is alive, who is successful, who is loved, is a perfect son. It feels like there's a wrench in my gut, and I'm not sure if I'm envious or happy or in love or all of those things. And that's when I realized that the only thing I do know is that I don't want either of them to ever feel the way I do, the way my mom does. That I don't want Sylvia's vocal cords to ever be ravaged by her grief. That I never want her son to have to hear that shit, for that shit to haunt him. And even though I hate him, hate him for how he fits so perfectly inside his mother's hug, I hope he will live on happily, as ignorant and as trusting as his mother. I hope that he is someone who doesn't think he needs a passcode on his phone. Wow, there's so many emotions that I felt when I was listening to this piece. So many questions that I want to ask, but um, firstly, um, we want to give you our condolences over the loss of your brother, Stephen. The story took place a few years ago, but I think we all understand that the pain of losing um, a treasure family members never really goes away. So thank you for being here. Thank you. And uh, those words are, you know, they're hit on, you know, they're like on the nail. They, um, it doesn't ever really get easier. You just learn to deal with it better over time. Well, yeah. Thank you for joining us again. Um, so let's just like kind of just get into it. Um, in your piece, grief manifests itself in many ways. In your story, grief over the sudden passing of your brother is something you kind of suppress um, at first. And through the suppression, the grief manifests itself through your relationship with your mom. For example, when you referred to her at the funeral as crying over her favorite son, um, there's this yearning you seem to have for the love that she was giving him, but not giving you. And that showed through the comfort you found in like the mother-like figure that was Sylvia. So I don't want to put the words in your mouth <laughs> about your feelings for her, as they are quite... Um, purposefully um, vague in the story and we even had a huge divided intense discussion um, in class as about what Sylvia meant to you um, so I'd like to ask you to please explain Sylvia um, Sylvia was this I mean beautiful kind woman that was my co-worker and she just she was like a friend a mother and all these different things <laughs> and I just really needed that at the time and she just kind of fit all those things so um I I, I love her <laughs> in like this weird um motherly way now not in the way I, I kind of thought of her then but she um I'm eternally thankful for her um coming into my life you said you said not in the way that I loved her then. Does that mean that there was some otherly love other than motherly love? Like, was there... Because when, when I listened to the piece, I was really on edge. And I was really like, does he have a crush on her? And then I find out that your girlfriend came to visit. So I'm like, I don't know. But he can still have a crush on her. But then you, you, you like, project this, like, project her as, like, a motherly figure when she touches your cheek and, like... So how did you feel about her back then? What kind of love was this? I'm curious. It, 
it, it was so it's so hard to describe because it it was so weird and it was there were so many things I was feeling that um everything kind of just swirled together and um uh like I guess I wasn't really happy in my relationship then so I guess I kind of just put also that onto Sylvia and um it and it was you know I I was mad at my mom mad at my brother and um I guess disappointed in the relationship I had and somehow Sylvia came and like swept all of those feelings and took them and you know amplified them and I she became um like you know I I loved her in a sexual way uh mm-hmm. for a while and then um and you know as a mother um and then after after I left the hotel those those feelings really kind of died away and I I just um love her as this woman who this motherly figure who you know came and appeared she was like my summer mother <laughs> That's such yeah, an interesting so transition. Beautiful. Yeah, because sexual love and then you transition to a mother. Like that's so interesting to yeah. me. That's really unique. I love that yeah. it's touched upon that grief and all sorts of things that come with it have a way of blurring your feelings and that it's something that's so completely normal, but that many people are kind of afraid to touch upon because it sounds so weird and it sounds so taboo. And it is, but it's real human emotion. That yeah. is completely mm-hmm. valid and completely, like, in in a sense, logical. I think it's yeah. really interesting because Sylvia plays like this um, really complex person in your life, and for her to come in at this specific moment, um, and I know we've we've had a couple discussions regarding this, but like, she was your person at this time. Yeah, uh, yeah. My my brother um, before was my person, and it, it was like I just looked up to him. It was the world you know if i got a compliment for him or anything and um losing him was just i didn't know where like where i was and who i was like i never knew who i was so um i used to validate myself through him and other people and what they said about me and um you know losing him was like i felt like i lost myself yeah yeah thank you so much um for bringing up your brother and being so willing to talk about that I think one of the the parts that I love the most about your piece is the honesty that you provide in yes. in the fact that like you explore feelings that um other people may be judgmental of and I think you do that really like it, there's no fear in the way that you that you project your feelings like you say I hate I like I hated my brother for this and that for being the favorite child so did you like while you were writing the story, were you just concentrated on like your own feelings, or did you think about like audience and like maybe them judging you for that? Or honestly, um, the end was a lot different in the first piece. I mean, the first uh, time I wrote it, because I was afraid of uh, what people would think of me. Um, I, I didn't mention uh, how I felt about my mother. I didn't really mention why I liked Sylvia. I just mentioned that I did, um, and I and I felt after. After, I just felt that I needed to say the truth, and it would feel a lot better, um, and that that this would be, um, that it would just be the truth, and it, and I needed to say it. Mm-hmm. So I just. <laughs> so you said it. Yes, I. Thank you for saying it. Seriously. Yeah. I also noticed that there is this ideal idealization of Sylvia through the chocolates and smiles. All she brought to your life was sweetness. 
Was this included intentionally to have the readers better understand why you felt the way you did about her? No, it was, it's actually everything I just remember about her. Like it was all the time. It was chocolates. She never missed a beat. It was always, oh, here, here's your chocolates. And sometimes she, um, she's about to get off the elevator. And I I wouldn't remind her, I actually don't even like chocolate, but but she would give them to me and I I couldn't say no the first time. And then I just, I I came to just love them um, because they were something from her. Mm, That's so sweet. Your little, Ow. your daily touch of sweetness. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful. I do not like chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't really have to answer it, but I, we're all kind of thinking it slowly, I know, quietly. We're all like, girls, like we don't if anything, it. shout out to Sylvia for making you like chocolate because I, I still don't like. That. <laughs> it's like no. So there's this really touching scene um, with you and your brother where you spill iced tea. And he takes the blame for you um, so that your mom goes easy on you, which, I mean, I wish we all had siblings that would do that for us. Um, (laughs) But listeners might get the sense that this is something uh, that happens between you and your brother often. I mean, that's me as a listener. That's what I receive. So can you can you explain a little bit more about this and and your relationship with him? Like, was he always looking out for you? He was. It was always. um, It was so many times that he just bailed me out from getting in trouble with my mom like messes and things and just like oh no I did that I left that plate there um or I broke this um and then uh there's like so many instances where you know he stood up for me um or he would do things because I was crying I remember when I was seven and um we were in Dominican Republic and he he was we were going to this hotel and my mom refused to let me drive I mean to be in his car because he was driving and he liked to drive at like 90 miles per hour all the time. <laughs> and she, I was, I was just bawling and he, he just, you know, stood up to my mom. He's like, no, Steven's going to drive. Steven's going to be in my car. I'm not going to drive fast. And that was a lie. Cause he did <laughs> totally drive fast. But, um, it was just all the time. He was there. He, anything I needed, anything I wanted. It was, I didn't, I didn't have to ask, like, I didn't, I never had to feel afraid to ask him to help me. And he was just there. I would love to um, explore more of the feelings of the when you talk about the after he died, like the fact that you say the word hate. What and um, I guess my question is, like those emotions for you, like can you like tell us a little more about that process for you? Because I can imagine like hating the fact that he left, but you explicitly say like hating him for leaving like can you ex- can you expand more on that um so when he died it was it was a really you know weird time and um i already kind of the reason i hated him for dying was because i felt that when he died that he had somehow stolen that away from me from the family because i i wasn't happy i was not happy who like because I didn't know who I was and what I wanted to do and it was the world is so, so so confusing and so kind of scary and I was like but I'm here and I don't I don't really want to be here mm-hmm. but I didn't have like the balls to do anything about it but um but then when he died it was it was I I saw what everyone you know everyone crying and that they missed him and I I thought you know if I had ever gotten the courage and done done something 
you know, they would be here mourning um, over me. And uh, and I, I just can't imagine putting my family ever, like, through that. And at the time, I was mad because I didn't, he, it felt like he stole something from me. And he, he just, he had, I felt he had everything in, um, going right for him in his life. And I just really wanted that. I wanted just to be like him. And mm-hmm. I knew I couldn't be. Steven, thank you so much for opening up to us about that. And I must say, I'm so glad that you're here. Same. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. We'll talk. It's not, it's, it's, it takes a lot of strength first to write about something so personal. Um, and then to talk about it, it's, you know, even to, exp- to like open yourself to, to us, to, to the audience. To revisit that, to allow yourself and allow us to, to go back to where you were during not only this time writing this, but experience it. it. It shows a lot of strength and courage. And I really have to commend you on all that. Thank you. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was hard writing the piece, um, but I'm so glad that I wrote it because um, I finally, you know, aired all these things out. And I, I never, I'm not someone... Before this, I, I was never someone who just, you know, talked to anyone about what I was felt. And um, I never even told my girlfriend how I felt really about uh, my brother. You know, she, she just sometimes I just end up crying uh, like on her on her shoulder or something and like out of the blue. And she she like asked me, like, why are you crying? Like, what's wrong? And I I just stay silent. I was like, just just let me just give me this moment. Just don't ask. And um, but you know, like writing about this, it it was just very liberating. And I finally feel I can, you know, kind of get past it and just look more towards the future. It's amazing how um, cathartic writing everything down can be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. So I'm glad you were able to release yeah. that through your writing. Yeah. Speaking of kind of this process of moving forward and taking steps towards I don't know, looking within yourself to kind of better yourself because of that situation. Um, I want to ask about your relationship with your mom because it is something that's very conflicting and very hard throughout the story. Um, If you don't mind me asking, um, has there been a conversation of sorts about your brother and your, your feelings towards him, like your own mental health, your need for your mother to have been there more when he passed? Um, no, uh, we don't talk about it. Our our relationship is very weird. Um, it it's strained, a little strained. I mean, I know she loves me, and I I love her too. I I can't hate her, but there's just like things that I can't forget, and I can't really forgive for some reason, even though I want to. But I I just can't. There's uh too many things in between, I guess, between us. I don't, I've never um. You know, I've never broached the subject, and I don't think I ever will. Um, you know, she still cries every now and then uh, over him, and it's still um, I, I still sometimes get angry, but I'm I don't I don't hate him, and I don't I don't hate her. Uh, I'm just I, I don't know. It's it's something something there. It's present in the back of my mind. That's all. What's making you upset is it the fact that she's crying still over him. No, or... I, I know she she will never you know she'll never get over it. It it's not it's not that it feels like I just I'm brought back to that day, 
Um, and I don't hate her for crying or, or anything, but um, I, I, not, I, I, it's not because he died and, you know, her, her um, attachment to him. It's just there's so many other things that um, it sounds stupid, but I just can't forget. And I can't really forgive her. I, one thing I can like, immediately think of was when he, when he died. Um, well, a few weeks after he died, she, she said something along the lines of that no one misses her that misses him as much as she does. Mm-hmm. That, that that she knows we're like we're all in pain. Um, my sister and I, my niece and nephew, his, uh, his two kids, but that no one feels feels his loss as strongly as she did. And I just looked at my sister, and we both kind of like, what the hell? Like, what are you saying? You know what you just said. Um, and like little things like that. Um, and even before my brother passed away, there's just, there's just a lot of things that I, I, w- I really wish I could forget. I could just forgive. It sounds to me that, um, like you, everyone's going, still processing this years later and still trying to deal with all this grief. Um, and I can definitely get from your story as well as what you've shared with us today that, uh, your brother was definitely that mediator that like connecting bridge between you and your mother's um, way for, for conversing and, and being able to have these open and like very honest conversations. And um, I can see how everyone is mourning his loss still. Yeah. Yeah, um, I definitely agree with that. He was always the one to bring us all together. It was, you know, uh, get together for Christmas uh, or you invite us somewhere to get together as a family um, for Thanksgiving, New Year's, everything. And, um, you know, we would all just get around and we talk and, you know, share, you know, little pieces of our lives and how we were doing. And he was definitely like a vehicle to do that. And now that he's not really here, we don't, we don't really have that. So we all kind of just, you know, holidays, I go off with my sister and we go somewhere my mom and dad go somewhere else. My dad sometimes just goes off by himself and my mom goes alone. It's like we don't, sometimes it feels like we're all strangers, you know, on their own roof. So sorry. Yeah, so you mentioned that perhaps there is no possibility that, like, that you can, like, to speak um, with her about, like, your feelings or anything like that, about how, like, how you feel about the fact that you're all still grieving about your brother and... And just your feelings towards her and the the things that that you can't forget or forgive. It's just, I I don't know how to approach the subject. I don't, I don't know. I don't have the words and, and I feel that I won't, I won't be able to do what I want to say justice, I guess, Mm -hmm. especially in Spanish because that's all she speaks and (laughs) my Spanish is, (laughs) it's pretty bad. Um, So I, I just... I don't know how to get there and how to say the right things and what needs to be said. So I, I just don't know how to approach the subject. I have no doubt that one day you will, though. Yeah. Then you guys yeah. will find that way to be a family again without the glue of your brother that held you all together. I hope I have, so, too. I, I have no doubt in my You'll mind that it'll glue. come some way. Yes, a new glue. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. <laughs> we needed that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess... There's only one last question to ask you, my dear. Yeah. And um, I guess it's just, what do you, what do you want all all of these readers, all of our listeners, to to take away from this story? Um, well, 
you know, writing this was such a process for me. And I definitely think that if anyone's ever feeling, um, you know, they're grieving over someone that they should definitely talk. It just felt so good to finally get these things off my chest and um, writing it, writing about it, you know, really put me back there. But it was, you know, it was a lot of sweet memories and, and there was bitter ones. But, you know, I definitely took a lot of from the happier memories like of Sylvia and um, things with my like the relationship with my brother. And, you know, if, if you're, you know, struggling with these feelings, just, you know, talk to someone, write it down. You'll save yourself a lot of, uh, you'll save yourself a lot of money, a future, like, psychiatry. Or you can <laughs> just <laughs> come see Karina because that's what I'm going to be. But we'll leave that there. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen, I guess there's nothing left to say, but thank you again. Yes. We hope you find your new glue. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for this piece. And well, please don't guys. ever stop writing. Yes. Thank you. I won't. <laughs> Our next author is Anonymous, a 90s baby and a proud student of John Jay College. This author loves the arts that is anything ranging from music to dance and poetry. She lives to help and entertain others through her mediums of expressions. She often finds that as she expresses herself, she is also breathing life into the person she wants to be. So let's listen to this author's story, Loyalty. You try to remember a time when your family didn't mean the world to you. But you can't. They always have, especially when protecting them meant protecting him. You think back to home, Jamaica, with the blinding sunlight and its mercifully cooled wind. You think about your aging kitchen table and the time when your mom cooked bread pudding. One by one, everyone drifted out of their beds. Your dad, then you, your older brother, and then your twin siblings. As the aroma poked them all in the nose, you all gathered in the kitchen as your mom cut a piece for each of you. The wind snuck through the open back door, whispering, hello, to each person's face. A joke was made, but you don't remember now, but you remember the laughter. And you remember watching your dad holding your mom in his arms as they danced to an off-key Michael Bolton song. With your parents distracted, your siblings snacked to the pan to steal an extra piece, and you planned to use your seniority to take half of it if they succeeded. You knew you would not need to pull the seniority card, though. They would give it to you just because your sister Mandy. You don't remember when the touches start. You woke up late at night back home in Jamaica and find someone touching your private area. You know it's wrong but you stay mute. You will say nothing the next morning or the morning after that. You wake up and outside you see green trees and the greenest grass surrounding your house. You see the houses in the valley spread out before you like food spread out, a picnic for God. Only the Bible verse, but you can trust God. He will not let you be tempted more than you can bear. But when you are tempted, God will give you a way to escape the temptation kept you going. You pushed through last night and the nights before memory. You think that maybe you did something to deserve his touches. You didn't. 
you will continue to wake up in the middle of the night, soon feeling licks instead of touches. You will move your body to signal that you are waking up, the only thing that makes him stop. The first few times you use this trick, it works. He's frightened by the thought that you are awake. The fact that he stops when you fake waking up places you into a sense of fall security. Knowing this trick helps you to fall asleep. The first few nights are okay, but later he will wait like a praying mantis waits patiently. You will fall asleep hoping you are safe, only to wake up once more to his touches. It never stops. Until he's away at university, after that, it happens less regularly. He would only come home every few months. He's coming home tonight. Don't think about the fact that when he gets here, you'll be actually happy to see him after three months away. Don't think about the fact that night falls in two hours and you will be asleep in four. Don't think about whether he will find a way into your bed again. When you hear footsteps in the middle of your sleep, do not open your eyes. You know who it is. When the shadow from his body falls over your face as he checks if you're awake, imagine that your breath is slow, a sad melody floating in and out of your body. Don't think about the times you played together as kids or the matching outfits you often wear, like twins, even though you are only three years apart. Think of the plans you have with him tomorrow. Think about the sunlight that will shine a light into your dark soul as soon as morning comes. The person who touches your vagina deep in the night when he thinks you're sleeping is not the person you joke with during the day. The person who tries to have sex with you while your younger siblings sleep not 10 feet away is not the person who harmonizes with you at karaoke, in the kitchen, or at church. Don't think about this person in the shadow that hurts you. Think about the person in the light who protects you. Think about the way he is in the morning when the shadows of the night recede and there's only light. You think about that protector. Even when something harder replaces his hands and lips, you twist and turn, hoping that like the early days, he will leave you to be tonight if you show him you are waking up. Luckily, he does. He stops hurting you, and you think back to the early days again. You know you should stay awake until he leaves your bed. You know you should not give up to the relief of sleep just in case he comes back. You try, but you can't. You lose the fight with sleep. You are exhausted. Your day had been a long one. Your mom had woke you up at 5 a.m. for school that morning. After school, you had Spanish class from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., and then chemistry class from 5 p.m. to 7.30. You even skipped lunch because you had practice for dance finals the next week. You fall asleep. You sleep until you feel your hymen break, and then you wake up with a silent cry, darkness choking you. You push him off for the first time. You run past your parents' room, and as you do, you think about going in and telling them everything. You look into the thick darkness of their room. There's no light at all. The curtain that was a door of sorts, was the only partition drawn tonight. There are no doors inside your house, only those to keep the dangers of the world out. You think about turning on the light in the darkness of your parents' room in their brains. You will tell them that Uncle John was right. 
that you can never trust a man or a boy, no one with a penis. Ah, man wants a pom pom mandy. He warned you in his thick Jamaican American accent. You want to tell them how right Uncle John is and how you need their help. You will tell them about him. You will finally tell him that night after night after night after night he touches you. You will tell them off that night when your younger brother woke up to use the bathroom and he stopped. That he took your younger brother to the bathroom and then he sang him to sleep. That right after he did this, he returned to your bed more eager than before. You will tell them that the clouds in your eyes could hold it no more. That the storm that had been brewing inside you broke that night. Only the storm didn't last long. It couldn't. You will tell them that he came to your bed after church on Saturdays and even on holidays. You will tell them everything, everything. You will tell them that he took your virginity. They will ask questions. You will hear your mom asking you, how long? How didn't I know? In her quiet, reassuring voice that would quiver from holding in her emotions from all she had just heard. You will tell her, there was no way for you to know. Then you will see your dad get up from your parents' bed and drop with a machete behind the bed that is often used to kill lizards, those that enter everyone's homes in Jamaica no matter what you do to keep them out. You will see the light in your dad's eyes replaced by fury, hate, and darkness. You can hear him shouting, even before his lips move. Your dad is little girl, and he will not stand for this. You know that shot will wake your younger siblings. You know they will cry. They always cry when they wake up suddenly. You know what they will see when they get up out of bed and walk towards the noise. They will see your dad beating him to a pulp with a rusty machete. They will see him becoming limp in your dad's hold. They will see your mom crying, asking your dad not to kill him, but without much effort since she's having the same thoughts. Then they will see you with red eyes and a blood-stained nightgown. They will see you also begging your dad to stop because despite everything, you love him. And it is this thought that you love him you love them all so much that holds you from entering your parents' room. You realize that this will destroy your family. You realize that this will ruin your family. This will destroy your family, rip you all apart to shreds, way worse than the machete ever could. And so you decide, I have to save my family. I have to keep my family together. You shut the bathroom door and alone you bathe in your tears. Years later, despite the fact that your loyalty to your family never wanes, your loyalty to this secret does. You begin to understand the importance of honesty. You realize that honesty does not negate loyalty. That to be loyal is perhaps to be honest, you think. And so, years later, you tell. You realize that you are an exception to the rule. Some of what you imagined comes to fruition. Your dad beats him with fists and kicks, not a machete. And your mom cries. But your younger siblings never see what happens. For that, you were glad. Your worst fear, that this secret will break your family, never happens. Instead, you all sit and read Bible verses together. Your mom's soft voice echoes throughout the house as she recites. So do not fear, for I am with you. 
Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Then your dad prays and draws from memory the verse. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. He saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. His words roll off each of you with their power as you all cry. You cry and cry. Apologies are made and you talk about how you felt, how you still feel, for the first time out loud. The talk is brief, but it sets the precedent for future conversations. You realize that lies aren't the best way to protect your family, to remain loyal to them, that the truth is much more effective. It is through that honesty that you build the bond you have today, an even stronger bond than you had before. It leaves you all even more loyal to each other than perhaps you ever were before. Oh my goodness. I can't decide how I feel, whether I'm upset or whether I feel proud of you in some sense or proud of everything that's happened. But my goodness, you guys, this is going to be a tough interview. I think this is the one of the most infuriating, heartbreaking, perspective-changing pieces we've heard here at Life Out Loud. And we want to say thank you so much to the author who is here with us for writing this piece, which touches on so much um, child safety, sexual abuse, family relationships, and forgiveness, ultimately. Um, these themes are all present in this piece. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here today. Um, before we go into questions, I was really wondering, what made you decide to use a second-person narrative to tell your story? So what was the writing process like? What was it difficult for you? Um, what parts were the most difficult? Um, was it difficult um, starting the piece or continuing it once you started writing it? Um, so I remember when Professor Madrazo told us that we should try the second-person perspective, she was saying that it's so much easier um, to write difficult things. And originally I, write, I wrote this piece in first person, but when I got to a certain point, I couldn't continue. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to try to see if it actually works, if second person actually works. And I did it in second person. It was kind of like, it was way easier because it's, you're not talking about yourself anymore almost. It's almost like you're talking about somebody else. And so the most difficult part was when I um, got into like real detail in the piece and then at some point I had to edit it because I started going back into eyes when it got difficult and so when I reread I realized that there was a lot of eyes in like the middle section of the piece or whatever mm -hmm. um, and so the most difficult part would have definitely been the middle part of it um, so yeah yeah I was going to ask that because um, for the class I also chose to wrote write I also chose to write in the um, second person perspective and I kept having that where it was so much easier to let it flow when it was kind of someone else not necessarily your story but then when things got like too deep i want to say the eyes start coming back in that that is a quite, yeah. a quite a difficult part of writing it um when it gets when it hits too close to home because it is home <laughs> yeah so i definitely feel you on that i think it's fantastic for our listeners to be able to understand that there are various ways you can write your difficult stories yes definitely. and i think that this piece does a really great job of doing that and I'm sure that we'll be able to show you guys some more different 
kinds of ways to do yes. things. Yes, that's yeah. true. So this piece deals with a lot of emotion. There's so many overlapping and um, kind of colliding emotions. And not only the emotion that is conveyed to the listener, but also your own emotions towards family and towards this person who hurts you. Um, you say, it is this thought that you love him, you love them all so much, that holds you back from entering your parents' room. As a listener, I can understand that you still love this person unconditionally because this person is part of your family and you've grown up with this person and created safe childhood memories before he hurt you. So t tell us, like, I don't want to say tell us. Were you afraid of judgment from the audience who perhaps expects you to hate this person? Um, <clears throat> during the workshop of this piece, people were like, how could you possibly love this person? And um, I was like, well, this is somebody that I know. And at one point in the piece, um, I think my exact wording was, don't think of him as a person who hurts you. Think of him as a protector during the daylight. And that's um, literally how I do think about it. I think about it as um, somebody who did wrong to me at night, you know. But during the day, there was so much good that happened, you know. And it's a 50-50 chance, whereas in philosophy, it's hard for you to say, how can the good outweigh the bad? But the good did outweigh the bad, in a sense. Um, and so it's really confusing, even for myself, to think about it. But... I do love this person. I will continue to love this person. Um, but I also have like inner hatred as well. And so it's kind of like a battle um, that happens with me every day. Mm -hmm. You are so entitled. I just want to say you are so entitled to have that inner hatred. And you are so entitled to have that stay with you and still continue to love this person. Because you are by no means, because of their relation to you, you are by no means like obligated to have a full love and full forgiveness for this person but the fact that you do just speaks to your heart so much like mm -hmm. i'm gonna get emotional but <laughs> someone else take over <laughs> i think it's actually it's really beautiful um that you're able to do that i know that there are people uh, in my life that um and I, th I think that everyone can relate to this but aren't willing or able to communicate it as beautifully as you did in your piece that there are two sides to every person. No one is 100% good and no one is 100% bad. Absolutely. And that's another thing that I'm talking a lot about. <laughs> our pieces and the way our rhetoric is and all this stuff today. But I just find it so amazing that writing allows you to portray individuals in the various colors that make them them. And and it's it's astonishing to me that we're all able to do that here. And you're right because... <clears throat> the world is not black and white. Like, we don't mm -hmm. see yeah. black and white. Totally. We see colors. And that is how we live our lives in colors. And everything has a different color, different shade, different yeah. hue. And so it's just something that we need to bear in mind when we think about situations that we face. Yeah. Just think about it, that this is a situation that I have to face. But that doesn't mean I have to do black or white. I can choose to do yeah. purple or pink. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? And so it's something to think about. And my dear, you do shine so many different colors, clearly. Yes. So, speaking of villainizing, so like I said, you do such a great job in telling um, how much the person in the shadows hurt you without 100% villainizing him. Uh, as you see two different people 
and you say, I quote, The person who touches your vagina deep in the night when he thinks you're sleeping is not the person you joke with during the day. You don't think about this person in the shadow that hurts you. You say, think about the person in the light who protects you. Think about the way he is in the morning when the shadows of the night recede and there is only light. These descriptions uh, make us feel like the abuser really is the two different people, as we discussed. Um, how did you make the same person in your story sound like two different characters? I mean, from a strictly like literary sense, um, I can imagine that it was hard for you, but um, you hate this person and you love them. And uh, it's just it's like there's two different, two completely different people in this piece. Um, sorry, while I was writing the piece, I don't think there was any um, thought in terms of trying to make the person seem like two different people. Mm -hmm. That's literally how I thought about it to cope with it. And it's mm. still kind of how I think about it to cope with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess my thought process just transferred to the paper. Mm. It's a really interesting process. Yeah, it's really cool how you did that, how you like completely separate as two different characters. And it does it does make sense that that's how you coped with it. So that's how you put it on paper. As our listeners can hear, we are still processing this story every time <laughs> we listen to it and we read it, which is why our tone might be a little bit different today and not as playful. We're still trying to make our way through it, just like the rest of them. So, Yeah, yeah also, um, in, in the piece you say, um, years later, despite the fact that your loyalty to your family never never wanes your loyalty to your secret does uh please tell us if anything or anyone influenced your decision of telling your parents about the abuse how did you know it was the right time to tell how difficult and i'm um, sorry to tell them and how difficult it was for you to start that conversation with your parents um <clears throat> well a part of it that i didn't include in the piece is that um what happens is that um i didn't tell my parents in terms of a sit down so it wasn't like I'm like mommy and daddy sit down yeah. this is what's gonna happen right now I'm about to tell you a secret so <laughs> um, that's totally not what happened um, what happened was there's a big altercation between the person and I mm -hmm. that day and I was like really upset and I was like okay and um, we were all sitting down to talk about that altercation and mm -hmm. then talking about that altercation transitioned oh. into talking about that and so it's kind of like an outburst that happened in the mm. middle of talking about something else. Mm. And then it transitioned to that. And then it transitioned it to everything else that happened yeah. after that. It must have been really difficult. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> Do you ever feel like you should have told them earlier? Or like sat your parent actually had done it the way that you said that didn't happen? Like sit them down and, and tell them without the individual being there, the abuser being there? Or were you glad at the way everything transpired in the end? Um, hmm. Thinking about it now, I would have probably loved to, for it not to have been an outburst. Mm -hmm. But I think with the way my family is, it's just that we're really family-oriented mm -hmm. and we kind of do everything as a family. And so I'm kind of glad it happened with um, him there and with my parents there and with my younger siblings out of the picture. Mm. Um because I didn't want them to know, and they still don't have an idea. So I just wanted... So that th way they can hold on to that innocence. Yeah. Yes. Did you feel at all, because you say that 
despite everything, you still held love for this person. Did you feel any sort of relief in a sense that the reaction of your parents wasn't as bad as as the machete incident that you described before? Um, yeah, I did feel a lot of relief because one thing I pride more than anything else in my life ever is family. I love my family a lot. Um, and so it was good to know that such a heavy secret would not like totally break my family apart because that was my biggest fear. I'm not sure if I conveyed it enough in my piece, but break my family apart was one of the biggest things that held me back um, in terms of telling what, what, what was happening. And so I was glad that once I did tell, even though, you know, there was a violence that came from it, that that violence just happened in the moment and then it stopped or, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think something that we are so um, kind of astounded by, in a sense, I, at, at least me, um, I could be speaking for myself, but I, uh, something that's very different about this story, this particular story of something this sad happening and something this this abusive situation happening is your is that relief is that relief that you just talked about that you don't wish the absolute worst upon him because you still have this love for him and i just i I just find that so um i'm not even sure how to describe it like i'm really not sure how to describe it like I, i i don't know but i i find that very interesting and I'm so grateful that this kind of story gets to be said because it is something that isn't heard a lot. And that voice that isn't heard a lot is why we do CNF, you know? So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm just trying to, like, thank you again for sharing this. Um, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do find that incredible in the piece that, like, you do, like, that terrible thing happened, yet you, you still love him. It's a uh, great thing that um after the terrible night um this person that took your virginity the last instance of the sexual abuse described in your piece did this person talk to you at all about the rape um or was that just something that you never spoke about until you finally revealed the truth to your parents um well after i lost my virginity it happened times after that so it wasn't um, I think my piece makes it seem like I lost my virginity and then never happened again until I told my parents. That was kind of not what happened. Um, and so it was just like, it just continued to be like an unspoken, unspoken, sorry, um, nightly event until I told. So he um, he was away at college, but when he came home, it still happened for a while before I did eventually tell my parents. So it was still like a long time. Um, I think I was about, Thirteen, twelve, when it started and it stopped when I was about 16, 17 so it was a while before I told my parents and so it was a while before um, the transition happened in terms of talking about it your piece does a really great job of being able to condense those what eight years or plus more or less I'm bad at math guys um, but that, it's about that, four it's about you know, four okay, thank, you. <laughs> thank you very much um, it does a great job of condensing those four years um, and, and making it seem like this was something that went by very quickly and it was handled um, immediately. And so I'm sorry you had to endure that. Um, but I, I, it just does an incredible job. The line, there are no doors inside your house, only those to keep out the dangers of the outside world, really caught my attention. And it's one of those that kind of stopped my heart a little bit. 
Um, because oftentimes people think that dangers exist only outside of the house, when in reality it's not true, especially your danger. That door to keep things out didn't stop your situation in. In fact, according to the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, children are most often sexually abused by someone they know and trust and not by a stranger. Um, with that being said, what do you hope people can take away from this piece? From my piece, I hope that people take away um, the fact that bad things don't just happen to um, to good people or bad things don't just happen outside. Stuff happens inside as well. Um, and there's often the habit to villainize people just because they did you wrong, and that's not always the case. So I just want people to take away the fact that um, there's good in everything. So just look for that good, basically. That's really beautiful that's really and sweet. a very unique view. I hope that we can all take that that away from this piece going forward. Just the fact that there are many sides to various people. Yes. And not all of them are good and not all of them are bad. Yeah. Not just when it happens to mm -hmm. you, but also when you see someone else's story. Exactly. Respecting yep. their view of other people, even if, it, if it's you know hurting you so much on the inside. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's very important. And we want to thank you so much for bringing that to us today. Definitely. Thank, Thank you, my so dear, much for having me. <laughs> so, our last author would like to remain anonymous for various reasons. He'll be reading his piece, A Fork in the Road. Let's listen. I'm on the dance floor awkwardly dancing with a hot girl, trying my best to look cool. After a song or two, she turns to me, places my hands on her hips, smiles and says, follow. Okay, 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 I got this. I look behind me and see that Simon, my best friend, has his eyes set on the really hot bottle service girl. Each time she brings a bottle to her section, his eyes light up, his chest puffs out, and he strides towards her, ready to claim his woman. I'm new to the club scene, but even I know she's just being nice because our section is ordering multiple rounds of drinks. I can't bust my boy's bubble, though, so I'll let him live. Then, I see my big bro, Al. He's looking pretty cool, like always. This is a summer 50 cents get rich or die trying, and Wankster is playing in the background. All the guys are trying really hard to avoid looking like a Wankster, posing extra tough. However, my brother's just being himself, relaxed, smiling, bobbing his head, cup in hand, listening to the music. I hope he doesn't notice the $400 shoes I borrowed from him. He hasn't worn them yet, and I'm certain they will be full of spilled liquor, Steve Madden stops, and Nike footprints by the time I end this night. We make eye contact. He notices the shoes on my feet, his shoes, I can tell with just one glance. But he only gestures to them with his lips and nose, raises his plastic cup, and just smiles. I should have known he'd be cool about it. The previous summer, right before I left for college in D.C., I borrowed about four pairs of his limited edition Jordans. I say borrowed because I left in August, and I knew that when I returned in October, the only pair that would make it back were a pair on my feet. That day, as I ran out the door, I'd yelled, Yo, Al, I took your four new Jordans. I'm out. Love ya. Nah, rule for real, man, he said. 
His tone was playfully defeated. Yep, sorry, gotta go. I answered, playing along. Since I'm the little brother, Alvin always let me win. But only because he always impressed upon me that the street life is a life of suckers. He was proud of me. I played ball and went to school. Letting me borrow his expensive shoes was his way of encouraging me to continue on the right path and leave the streets alone. I want to run the scene at this club without even trying. He's reserved a whole section for the block. And each time he notices an empty cup, he weighs over the waitress and orders another round. It's not surprising that all night long he has a circle of people around him. And that everyone who talks to me all night keeps saying, Yo, Rube, your brother's the man. I think about how glad I am that he's back. I couldn't wait to see my brother back home after he spent the last five years touring New York State's penitentiary system at Clinton, Coxsackie, and Attica. When my brother got sent to prison, it felt like I was losing a father. My brother's only six years older, and for a long time we had a parent-child relationship. My mother was a single parent with three kids and worked two jobs. She left Alvin to watch over my sister and I while she worked to put food on the table. At only 14 years old, while most teenagers spent their summer vacations playing sports, hanging with their friends, or just watching television, my brother Alvin worked. His job was making pancakes for my sister when I just wanted cereal, or cooking rice and beans for my sister when I wanted mashed potatoes. But that was when we were kids. Tonight, it felt good to be hanging out like adults. I was finally older now, and our mutual interest in alcohol and women seemed to finally bridge our age gap. Time to see what big bro got, I think to myself. More importantly, time to show him that little bro is pretty damn cool too. Now I know what you're thinking. Nightclub, New York City, Manhattan, bright lights, big city, bottles popping, champagne, ladies all around us. And that all makes sense. But this club is located way uptown. Things are a little different here. This is the type of place where the bouncer has you walk through metal detectors and still pats you down. Female security rummages through women's purses and stands ready all night. Just in case a girlfriend might need a pat down as well. Fancy rock glasses and beer bottles are replaced by plastic cups. There can be no glass here. Should a fight break out, the glass bottles would be used as knives. And we can't have that. I don't have too much experience with nightclubs. So this all seems logical and fair. I'm not worried about a thing. Especially when Alvin makes it to the dance floor. With the music playing in the background, liquor dissipating our inhibitions, we soon break out into the kin and play dance together. Yes, the corny cheesy dance from the early 90s movies. The one where you lock one hand together, lift a foot, touch ankles, and jump around like two fools in a circular motion. Yep, that one. Now, this would have been cool in 1993. Maybe. But this was 2003, and Kid and Play had been played out for a decade. We didn't even notice if people were looking or laughing. We didn't care. It was our moment. Our first time in the club together. And we were killing it. 93 style. To make things even better, it was finally summertime. Summertime in New York is awesome. But summertime in the Heights is fucking awesome. You guessed right. I'm not talking about Crown Heights, Brooklyn Heights, or any other heights. To native New Yorkers, there is only one heights. Washington Heights. Land of the free and home of the brave. Little DR. Dominican Republic, as it is affectionately known. This 
is pre-gentrification Washington Heights. Circa 2003-2005. The Heights, where in the summer of 2005, I saw my first white face at 701 West 175 Street. That was the year a middle-aged white man moved his lovely wife and precious five-year-old daughter into my building. When I learned he had a family, I stared him in the eye, looked him up and down, and laughed. Good luck, champ. I mocked as I exited the elevator. At the time, the United States Census Bureau estimated that Washington Heights was 87% Dominican. Not Latino. Dominicano, papa. It was like our own small island in the Caribbean, simply relocated to the northernmost tip of Manhattan Island. And this white man thought it was okay to move his family into my neighborhood? He lasted two months, which was about 58 days longer than I expected. Anyway, Washington Heights explodes in the summer. You can feel the merengue music pulsing through your body as you walk, adding rhythm to your tumbao. You can taste the beer and brugal rum in the air as you walk by the old men playing dominoes, blaring car horns synchronized with the horns of merengue music playing out of the bodega. The hola mami vive bella cat calls act as ad-libs to Raulín Rodríguez, Nereida. Each police siren, each ambulance and fire truck whizzing by. Each ice cream truck jingle, each shuffle of little feet yelling happily, each slap of a domino on the table, and each kiss on the cheek. As to the beautiful cacophony that is Washington Heights. Each person is their own little maestro, orchestrating their unique mix to the soundtrack of the Heights. This is the type of place where on my block, the guys thought it would be a good idea to pitch a tent square in the middle of the block so they could drink, smoke weed, and play dominoes. This was no ordinary tent, though. It fit eight to ten adult males, chairs, table, and oboe room. When I told them I could smell their weed from up the block, suddenly I met eight lawyers. Nah, 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 you crazy, Rube. They said, the cops can't come in here. This is like our house. They need a warrant. Oh. I replied, knowing, of course, that the cops didn't need a warrant. Surprisingly, it's taken a week for the cops to make them take it down. But I gotta say, I really admired and respected their stubborn naivety. A little weed in the tent was nothing on my block, though. If Washington Heights is considered the nation's capital of the drug game, then my block was 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House, baby, the center of it all. At any given moment, easily two to 300 people occupy the stoops of all four buildings that made up our block. And the weed dealers, pill dealers, and guys selling bootleg liquor each had their own space. And as my friend so eloquently put it, up the block, don't fuck with down the block, Rube. And that's just the way it is. Although we're all part of the same family, it was imperative to never encroach on another crew's business. And that's what he meant. You sell what you sell, and that's it. My brother Alvin, however, had the distinct honor of selling whatever he wanted, wherever he wanted. It was a special privilege that he earned partly because of his reputation in jail. Literally, dozens of people would come home from prison and say, Yo, Rube, your brother looked out for me in there. Anything you need, come see me. More importantly, he always got along well with everybody. I admired how in a block full of vultures and backstabbers, my brother moved with the grace of a king, high-fiving the fellas, smiling at the pretty girls, and even drinking coffee with the older ladies at the salon. I would move seamlessly through the block, all parts of it, 
and everybody loved them. Washington Heights is a beautiful place, but here, no matter who your brother is, anything can happen, anytime. You have to always stay ready. So, I'm not totally surprised when I step outside of the club to see Simon arguing with a few kids from another neighborhood. As I'm approaching, one of their guys puts a small caliber six shooter and points it at Simon. Little does this stranger know, this is what Simon's been waiting for all night. I suddenly remember how when we walked into the club, he got a gun past security by cleverly dropping it in the hood of his sweater. The bouncers patted him down but never checked the hood. Simon's face lights up. He squats, reaches down into his belt, and pulls out a shiny, brand new 45 chrome magnum. The Dirty Harry gun. The barrel of this thing is almost a foot long. It looks like it will blow a hole through an armored truck. The other guys apologize and take off. At this point, me and Simon know it's time to go. We do a quick glance for my brother, but we don't see him. We're not concerned, though. My brother's always on point and always ready for whatever. Simon and I are in the cab now laughing, full of bravado, joking about them bitch-ass niggas. We just punked. We hop out the car and are in front of my building. I like something. Except before I get to take a pull, we're interrupted. To this day, I don't remember who, but someone grabs me and says, Yo, Rube, you have to come now. It's your brother. Immediately, my heart drops into my stomach. I'm scared and pissed off at the same time. What the fuck you mean? I yell. Rube, chill. Just come. He's in the next building. Apparently, the guy Simon and I scared off caught up with my brother. As soon as I see him, I cry. I'm sobbing uncontrollably. So much for being grown up. There isn't a thought process at this point. There isn't a need for one. My brother's dead. I'm sure of it. Have you ever seen a person beaten in death? I could only recognize him for the same reason that, from a long distance, you're able to recognize any family member or someone you're close with. You just know that is them. But my brother is unrecognizable. It's the exact opposite of what an artist does with a lump of clay before he molds it into a beautiful sculpture. His face is made formless by the punches, stompings, baseball and golf clubs, swings, or some around-the-way motherfuckers. Like I predicted earlier with Simon, my brother actually was on his way home safely in a car. He leapt out of the car while it was still in motion because he thought one of the guys from the block was being jumped. Instead, it was my brother who got jumped by 20 guys, each punting and swinging away at him like he was some fucking science experiment. How much of a beating can his skull take before it splits open? They seem to need to find out. Who beats a helpless man lying on the pavement in a fetal position for 10 minutes? I think. The guys from my block are trying to convince me that Alvin is alive. But I just continue to cry. He has no eyes. He can't speak. He can't stand. I hold him close and feel him breathing. And it is the only indication I have that he's alive. Otherwise, he's lifeless. I hold him tighter. If these are his last moments... I want him to know that he's not alone and that I love him very, very, very much. How am I going to explain to my mother that my brother's dead, I think? How will my niece react, his daughter, 
Daddy's gone now. Someone will have to tell her. My sister, she has her own kids. But I know if my brother passes, she will die too, at least spiritually. I have no energy, no more thoughts. I'm lifeless too. Until Lefty shows up. Lefty's originally from the block, but disappeared and assembled his own crew while in his late teens. He's motherless, fatherless, yet a descendant from a lineage of known shooters. Lefty is always around the neighborhood, but never seen. He's always looking for someone, but can never be found. You only locate Lefty if he's looking for you. Needless to say, you want to be on his good side, which I was, because he had done time in prison with Alvin, and so he grew to respect him, and me by extension. I hadn't seen Lefty in months, but within a couple of hours, he's learned of my brother's beating. It's as if someone flashed a Lefty Batman sign into the Heights' darkness. He's anxious to know who did this. If he finds out, we all know what will happen. He leaves, but I know he'll be back. My brother's laying on a bed. We know if he falls asleep, he might not ever wake up. So we take turns talking to him and making sure he's conscious. It's three, four, five in the morning. I don't really even know at this point. I'm exhausted. My boy Mo gets a phone call from some girl he's fucking. I'm sure he's thinking it's a booty call, and he answers. Suddenly his mouth falls open and he puts her on speaker. She starts telling us how her brother and his friends jumped some guy outside of the same club where we were earlier. Oh, yeah? And your brother was there? Mo baits her while we all listen. I can't fucking believe this. This dude's own sister gave him up without even knowing it. Now, I know one of the guys who did it. Now Lefty knows. We know what block he's from. We know he's building. We know all we need to know. I whisper to Mo, don't say shit to anybody. In case I have to do this, the less people that know, we know, better. I'm supposed to go back to Georgetown for my sophomore year and have a pretty good chance at making the ball team. Life is going pretty well for me right now. I don't need this coming back to me on any level, legal or street. I look at my brother barely hanging on. My blood bubbles and I think about how I'm going to kill this girl's brother. I want to shoot this motherfucker in the face. My imagination starts racing. I'll sit in the rented minivan. I'll wait for him. Without knowing this piece of shit, I already know his daily routine. He gets up sometime around noon, gargles some henny, breakfast bun, and walks to his punk-ass block. He'll be out there until about 8 p.m., making a few scraps of dollars, go home around 10 or 11, and then come back out. At this point, he's ready to party, which means one of two things. Either he'll grab a bottle and blunts and chill with his lame-ass friends. If he's not a total bum, he might actually go to a club. He'll get home sometime after 3 in the morning. The building Mo describes as the girl he's hooking up with is one I know. It's a pre-war walk-up, five stories, which means there's no elevator. I already see it. I wait behind the stairs and shoot him in the head twice. Bam, bam. Too loud. I'll need a silencer. Gunshots are loud enough and they'll echo louder in the hallway. I plan my escape route. I'll move through the labyrinth of basements that are connected. I'll be home before anybody finds his worthless body. But then I think about his family. This is someone's son, someone's brother, maybe even someone's parent, I realize. Fuck that. What about my family, my brother? Did he think of my mother as he stomped Alvin's head? Did he think of my niece when he swung the club? Did he think of my sister as my brother pleaded for his life? Did he think of us? Nope. My thoughts continue as I sit with my brother trying to keep him alive, and I think about how scared he must have been. Nah, fuck this dude and his family. He gotta go, I say to myself. Suddenly, I'm snapped out of this dream. Someone runs into the apartment where me and my brother are. Yo, Rube, Lefty's outside. He wants to holler at you. The crooked smirk on his face and his judging eyes say it all. 
What you gonna do now, schoolboy? Fuck you, Miles reply. You think just because I'm in school, starting to make something of myself, that I can't also handle some street shit? Fuck you, I say again in my head. I'll handle my brother's beef. I walk out to the lobby and it's still full of a bunch of guys. The reality of my brother's situation hits me even hard as I step out to the lobby. It feels like a funeral home. Like people are around to pay their respects. I'm scared again. Lefty walks into the lobby where I'm standing, gives me a strong hug and says, let's take a walk. I know what this walk is about, and so do the lobby full of men. Everyone knows what this walk is about. Lefty comes from a family of killers. He's not here to pay his respects. He's not here to put his arm around my shoulder for me to cry on. He's here to find these motherfuckers and do what uptown niggas do. I know what he expects and what's here to help me do. I know what I have to do. What all these guys here know I have to do too. Am I ready for this? I suddenly wonder. I mean, I was just daydreaming about the perfect plot. I don't have to do this now. Today though. Right? This can wait. Yeah, just not now, I think to myself. I just need some more time, that's all. But I don't have time to make this decision. I'm walking down the lobby towards the car with Lefty. With each step I take, my body transcends itself. It signals that I'm one step closer to doing this, to really doing this. I'm walking in stride with Lefty, but really, I'm having an out-of-body experience. I can't hear or feel anything. I'm watching myself walking, watching myself saying yes to this with each step. The hallway's silent, but I can hear everyone speaking to me somehow as I pass them. Some of their eyes say, do it, get revenge. But some say, I understand if you don't, Rube. And those few who really care about me simply say, please don't. Then, of course, there are the haters. I can't even read them. All I know is that I'll be wrong in their opinion no matter what I do. If I get in Lefty's car, I'm stupid. If I don't, I'm pussy. We're standing at the car now and I'm buying time. I stay at the ground and I think of what my brother would do if the situation was reversed. I don't need a guess, I know. When I got jumped in college, I hadn't even told my brother. To this day, he doesn't know because I was afraid of what he'd do if he knew. That he'd get sent back to jail for even longer this time. I think of the times I called on my brother, how he slapped the life out of people and publicly shamed them. I think about all the guys who gave me respect because they didn't want to meet the same fate. How everyone knew to never, ever fuck with me. I think of how much easier that had made my life. How he'd always been there. How his reputation itself protected me, even when he couldn't be around. How he sacrificed his childhood to raise me. How his sacrifices and toughness allowed me to be an athlete, to be a student, to be a kid. I think about how I had him always, but how he never really had anyone. He protected me growing up. But where was his protection? Who was there for him? I had to be. It was time to show him I was there now. I could handle it when shit went wrong. And more importantly, I pay him back for the times he was there for me. But this was more than just slapping people around I knew. This was, could I even do it? I wasn't tough in the same way Alvin was. He was always tough for me. So I didn't have to be street tough. Maybe I didn't even know what I was doing. I shouldn't get in this car. I can't. No, wait, I can. I can do this, I think. I'm tough, too. We're cut from the same cloth, after all, right? Same mother, same father. What's in him is in me, right? He's a warrior. I'm a fucking warrior, too. And besides, he's my brother. I'm the only one who can do this for him. I need to do this. I want to do this. But then I think of our mother, all the sacrifices she made. I left for private school at 14 and moved 272 miles away because of her hard work. 
She lost me during that time, and she lost my brother to the prison system at around the same time, too. Both her sons were gone. One away to school, the other to prison. I think if I crushed her, losing Alvin like that, losing me at such a young age, but now she's got us both back. My mother sacrificed too much to let me go away to private school. And what if Alvin doesn't make it tonight? She'll have lost two sons to the streets, despite everything she tried to do to prevent that from happening. I never told Lefty about the phone call Mo received, but I don't have to. He tells me, I know where they at. He opens the car door to the backseat and tells his friend to move over. I can't tell who's in the car. All I can see is black hoodies, black pants, black masks, black gloves. One lap displays a gun. Black nine. And I know it's now. Now that I have to make this decision. That I've basically already made it just by walking out here. I mean, I just walked to Lefty's car in front of everyone. Everyone knew what that meant. And look at these goons here ready in this car. Ready to do for Alvin what I should be doing for him. Ready to go kill for him. Ready to go to prison for him. Ready to do all the things for him that I know he would do for me if I wanted him to. But I wouldn't want that. Wouldn't want him to do this. And it's then, for the first time all night, that I really think about what Alvin would want. What he would want me to do. How many times he told me gangs are for suckers while I stayed at the gang beads around his neck. How when I was 12, he found me probably wearing his beads and his eyes filled with tears. How he calmly explained, I'm your gang, Ruben. This block is your gang. Gang life ain't for you. The streets ain't for you. I think back and hear his voice through a prison phone. Real men are in the real world, Rube. Earning a living, taking care of their families. I can't be there for mom right now. I'm not a man. You're the real man. Jealous for suckers. Think about my friends who tell me that I'm all my brother talks about. I'm going to make it to the NBA one day or become a lawyer. How he expected a normal, successful life for me. One he never really knew. And it's then that it's totally perfectly clear how I can pay Alvin back for always being there. For being the father figure for me. The one he didn't have. For being there for me and my sister all those summer days so we wouldn't find other people to stand in instead. Others who might have taken us down the wrong path. Taking us here to a situation just like this one. How Evan had done everything he could to keep me out of situations exactly like this. How all those times he let me take his sneakers so I wouldn't have to find a way to come up with the cash for them myself. How much he'd done so I wouldn't have to worry about cash at all. Which was his way of making sure I didn't end up like this. Forced to hustle. Forced to leave school. Forced to make choices. Like this one. That would ruin everything we'd worked so hard for. I love you. Thank you, Lefty, I say. But I can't do this shit. I hope you understand. My brother made it through the night and slowly recovered. Only a few years later, a joint task force team of federal agents would arrest Lefty and members of his crew for various crimes ranging from sale and possession of drugs to murder. They carry sentences from five-year mandatory minimums to life in prison. I know that the very act of getting in the car that night would have indicted me under the RICO law, and I would be living behind bars with them right now. Instead, I now live half a mile from where I was raised, on the nice side of town. I'm married to my lovely wife, Geneva, and have a beautiful four-year-old daughter, Liv. I'm fortunate to have graduated 
for one of the nation's most elite private high schools. And three years after that night, I went on to graduate from Georgetown University with a double major. In the Far Star Law School at Seton Hall University, and I look forward to providing for my family in ways my brother always knew I could. And most importantly, I'm here with you all today, writing this story for a vibrant, intelligent class, instead of to some pen pal, one who would surely be reading a much different ending to this story than the one you guys just got. Wow, what an amazing piece um, about choices, about relationships and um, family relationships and just decisions, life, very, very tough life decisions that you know many of us haven't had to face before. So this is a very unique piece, at least for me. Um, and thank you also um, for the intelligent part at the end. That was nice. Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate it because I was in class with you, Ruben. This was definitely like the entire class's favorite piece. We had someone who wrote a six-page feedback letter on it. What? Single space, guys. Single, Single space. <laughs> and it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the one piece that got a vote from every single person in the class to come on the podcast all 20 people we are in the presence of royalty of cnf royalty <laughs> bow down <laughs> bow down yeah so um if, in case we haven't said it reuben it's an absolute pleasure to have you here thank you thank you um you and i we've we've spoken uh, about this piece outside of class before um and i just need to say that the decisions that you make here the places that it takes you and most importantly the places that you take us through this piece especially through washington heights um is quite an insight um, particularly for a lot of our listeners that either don't live in new york or have necessarily never gotten the opportunity to see um it through your eyes through a native's eyes so yeah. thank you for that yeah uh just a comment on mm -hmm. that uh, you and I spoke after class today, and it was it's refreshing to hear you say that. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I felt this was a story that needed to be told. Um, it's been heard before. Other people have different circumstances in life that make their journey uh, to their professional career difficult. Um, some people have illnesses in the family, an alcoholic or abusive parent. Um, and this story of being raised in an environment like Washington Heights seems to be taboo and doesn't get the same respect, I feel, that, you know, someone's father who lost a job or someone's mother who had cancer. Um, so it's really refreshing to hear you all say that you connected with the piece um, because, you know, these are just the circumstances of my life. Mm. I didn't choose them. Um that's that's just what I had to overcome, and that was my story. So thank you guys for, uh, you know, saying that you connected to the story. Thank you. Yeah, and I I think that you did. We talk about connection, but you actually did a beautiful job in your description and the way that you make sure that the listener um can visualize every scene throughout the piece. So I just wanted to say that I really enjoy that, and um I actually live. 
kind of in the middle of Harlem, the middle of Washington Heights, the one forty first. So I I go up there, and I think that you described it. You do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's the description. I could see it, and the dominoes. Uh, Everything was just like I I felt like I was there yeah. again and I really enjoy that about your piece. Yeah. Um so my question uh I guess would be how did how was it the process of writing this piece? What was on your mind when you were creating these visuals? How did you go about that and ensuring that the visuals were really accurate, really really vivid for the listener? Yeah. Well, I'm a proud proud Dominican, proud proud New Yorker. <laughs> Love the heights. And, you know, Washington Heights explodes in the summer. There's this energy to it that's unlike any other community. Uh, not like Midtown. I, you know, I don't know the Bronx. I don't know Crown Heights. Like I said, these other heights, I don't know them. But if you live in Washington Heights and it's summertime, the, the neighborhood literally just, I said, it explodes. And it has this, you know, anything can happen feel to it. Uh, there's energy. You can just walk through the neighborhood and have a good time just seeing people. Um, so it was something that it just, it came natural. I wanted to describe how I felt uh, living in Washington Heights, walking through my block. Um, mm. And so I just try to go in that moment and envision myself summertime. What does it feel like at 4 p.m. walking from, you know, getting something to eat back to to my street where I grew up. And um, another question is emotionally, because I did feel a lot of emotion from the piece. And I think at every step I was expecting, uh, what is he going to do next? Or, you know, just when you're at the club with your brother, like I felt that kind of like uh, ad admiration that you had for, for your brother. So emotionally, when you were writing the piece, did you put yourself in, in that place? Where did you transport back? to 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 that place yeah it was it was difficult i'm glad i took this class because it allowed me to deal with some identity issues that i've had obviously reading the piece you know growing up in washington heights uh being a private school kid and going to law school there's these two very different worlds and and i had to deal with that you know i didn't know that when i was in undergrad working And when my assignments were late, when I had to come home to help my mother deal with landlord, go to court because our landlord was trying to evict us just because on some uh, frivolous non-payment charges or because my cousin who dealt with substance abuse issues was missing for a month. So I had to come back from Georgetown where I went to college to come back home and find my cousin, literally hit the streets and find him. You know, that took away a lot from me being able to dedicate to my studies. You know, I worked four jobs in undergrad. And it's a story, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, you know, um, sometimes I just said, oh, whatever. You know, this isn't a big deal. This is what I had to do. But I really had to go back in that place and acknowledge that, yeah, I mean, it's compelling. You know, it is my story. I don't like to talk about it much. I never do. Um, but I felt this was the one opportunity I had to put it on paper And, and let it go and see who connects to it because mm -hmm. I know other people have similar uh, they grew up in a similar situation definitely um, yeah, I've told you uh, plenty of times that I 
look up to you and to one of our other hosts who is here with us, Stephen. Um, both of you have faced some pretty serious um, and difficult things. And um, I had never known that there were other, well, obviously I had, I had known that other people go through things, but I had never known that other individuals were faced with um, these kind of difficult decisions of trying to decide, okay, so do I want to be the private school person and like everyone else who's in the private schools? Do I want to make this decision and have it define me forever? Mm -hmm. Do, and, and, uh, you know, meeting you guys and hearing the story and, um, which is again, me thanking you as we do very often here. Um, had you not written that, I wouldn't know that you had walked the same path as me or that you were so many steps ahead. And I would have never been able to catch up to you guys and been able to to reach out my hand and and congratulate you yeah. for doing what I essentially didn't know that I could do. Yeah. So um, it means a lot. And uh, thank you for opening up to talk to us about it, even though you don't like to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but since you brought up Georgetown, mm. because I know... Our listeners really want to know, as probably the rest of us here do. Um, even in the piece, you mentioned it a couple times, like mm-hmm. the, the things that you had to go through there. But what I found most interesting was you coming back home to the Heights. Yeah. Um, in your piece, you write, and I quote, The crooked smirk on his face, his judging eyes say it all. What are you going to do now, schoolboy? Fuck you, my eyes reply. He thinks just because I'm in school studying to make something of myself that I can't handle some street shit. Was this something that you experienced regularly? Because I feel it in in this piece. I feel like, you know, you this you're struggling with not only your identity here, um, but your identity at school. And even when you come home, it doesn't make it any easier. Like, it must have been so very difficult. Yeah. So you never quite fit in. Right. So in in the Heights, I'm too preppy. I speak too well. He's just a school kid. Mm-hmm. And then at Georgetown, you're hood. You're hood. <laughs> so you never fit in. Yeah. Right. And so you just have to be true to yourself. Um, you know, it was like I said, I mean, I know a lot of people who grew up in situations who had the opportunities that I had to go away to college and they don't come back home. Mm. they leave you don't see them for years I'm not the only one to do it I know a lot of people who've had those opportunities and I don't respect that Mm. I was about to ask you because should I have chilled on the block less yes (laughs) right I should have you know the, the people who I loved the people I was close with it wasn't a conscious decision for me to go back home and hang out with the people I hanged out with. I hung out with the people that I loved and I connected with. And they just so happened to be involved in all this activity. Mm-hmm. Right? So it wasn't me trying to be anything or, or keep it real. I just, I love those people. It's good that, we're, that you mentioned that. Because I actually want to ask you about... Um, the piece. So another thing, I love a lot of things about your piece, but another thing that I really like about your piece is that I think it navigates the world of urban youth, of 
criminal activity in a way that's very different from what we hear, right? The thug, the the kid who doesn't want to amount to anything, but your brother actually makes sacrifices mm. for you. And I think that that's really, really powerful that in your piece you break those stereotypes because a lot of kids that are involved in crime don't necessarily sometimes have a choice, right? Yeah. That's one. Sometimes it's the world they know, right? To navigate, to survive, or to support their families. And I think that you do that really, you, you express that in your piece and it, and it breaks those stereotypes. Yeah. <laughs> I think Karina wants to say something. <laughs> I think it's so interesting that you brought that up actually because we had a discussion about that when we when we critiqued yeah. this piece in class that yeah. like everyone's immediate... Um, go to is to idolize this this sort of life um and either you know it's uh portrayed in mass media as this glamorous thing that like yeah you know it's tough and yeah you know only ghetto people do it and that's their way of like doing their getting rich quick schemes or whatever but like you don't you do not at all do that you don't shine this like glorious like beyonce like light on it you are like no this is what it is this is what people have to do um you you don't idolize this. Yeah, I, I think that's what. Response to Karina's question about idolizing the street culture of of places like Washington Heights, um, I never did, and so I think that's what made me different. Is that I grew up in this neighborhood that was very active. Uh, my block in particular was very active. All my friends were very active in this life, and at five years old, when I would come home from kindergarten and see all the guys in the corner with weed smelling up the entire street and seeing the money and seeing the cars is not something that I ever idolized. You know, I never saw them as cool. I didn't. Um, I always knew that I wanted something more, even as a five, six, seven-year-old. So while I liked hanging out because, you know, we live in apartments in New York City, you can't hang out in somebody's basement, right? So the only place to hang out and play is in the streets, right? So I hung out a lot, uh, but only because that's, you know, I was just socializing. I was just making friends. And um, so I never idolized it. I know a lot of people did. They were very short-sighted. And when what I was saying about what made me different is that I felt guilty in high school, definitely in high school and in college, about this opportunity that I had. And I would always tell people, man, if all my friends had this opportunity, they do the same. That's not true, right? Because it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of discipline. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of strength to be away from your family at 14, at 18, to be away from college, to deal with not fitting in at Georgetown, to deal with not fitting in at home. Mm -hmm. It's easy to pack up your bags and just return, I know a lot of people who've done it, you know, at least at in college, dozens of kids didn't make it past sophomore year. Dozens yeah. of, of black and brown underprivileged kids didn't make it past sophomore year. So the truth is that, no, there was something different. And, and I don't feel guilty about it anymore. I think the kids who idolized it, you know, they were, you know, that's on them. Yeah. Right. They, they chose that. You know, I didn't. But yes, I just never idolized it. Yeah. I saw a bigger picture. I love that you emphasize the necessity of it, that you emphasize that your brother and people oftentimes did these things out of necessity. 
because it was a last resort and because they had to make money and they had to make a lot of money. Yeah, it wasn't something that they idolized. It was something that they had to do to feed their families. Yeah. Yeah. And that is something that's so important. That's something that a lot of traditional media doesn't doesn't touch on at all. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for you to bring that up, I find that amazing and I respect that a lot. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, the pecking order helped, right? My brother was the oldest. He mm-hmm. took the lumps, right? He allowed his, his experience allowed me to be a student. It allowed me to play basketball, which I liked. Um, he didn't have that, you know, like he told me one time, he said, you know, when rent's due and at 16 years old, he's making a thousand dollars a day, mm-hmm. a day, day. that would be nice. There's no, 365 of those. Right. So he's That's like, a lot. and he was on the low end. Yeah. He had friends his age who were making $2,000 a day, 16 years old. So he, he just said. You know, I see mom is struggling. I'm making a thousand dollars a day. What he am I going to school up for? And he did yeah. what he had to do. Yeah, what yeah. am I going to go to school mm-hmm. for? Yeah. So it was it was a necessity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he saw it as that, and I think a lot of people in the communities in a similar situation see it as that. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to talk to you about Lefty. Well, when you first introduced him, you mentioned he comes from like a long line of shooters, and he grew up motherless and fatherless. Mm-hmm. But he made his own gang when he was a teenager, and his and your brother looked out for him when he when they were incarcerated together. Um, and he mentioned that he's you know he's killed before, uh, and he's actively trying to seek out revenge for your brother in this piece. Um, but when you two meet, he gives you a strong hug. He doesn't push you into revenge. You know, it, it makes it seem it's entirely up to you. And at at the end, you you wrote at the end near the end of the piece, you wrote, "I love you, thank you, Lefty." And I can't do this shit. And I hope you understand. It seems like you really cared about him. And it seems like, you know, he cared about you. So what was your relationship before this, before these events with Lefty? So when I was, when I was, so first of all, Lefty is, again, uh, a product of his neighborhood. Of course. Um, You know, when I was 12 years old uh, at the park right down the street where I grew up, uh, they sold crack. And Lefty was a young uh, dealer. Um, and because I played basketball all the time at the park, I was there all day. I was around him and, um, we would play basketball all day. He'd buy me food. Um, you know, as I spoke to him when he got older and he still remembers those times. So he, he looked out anytime I came home from school, he was the first person to find me, uh, give me a hug, uh, tell me that he loves me and say, if anybody messes with you, you know, your brother's not around, come find me and we'll take care of it. Um, yes, he did bad things. Yes, he should be in jail. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, we, we were, I mean, we weren't best buddies, but there was a love there. There was definitely a good, a warm feeling between he and I. Yeah. Um, and I always got that from him. No, I, I can, we can see it in the piece for yeah. sure. And, um, I mean, everyone, you know, everyone has their demons, uh, but just just like everyone has their demons, there there is good in people. No one's totally evil. Yeah. And, I, and I think you definitely showed that in Lefty. Mm-hmm. Which is what's so beautiful about our genre, about the CNF genre, that it allows us to portray various um, vibrant characters mm-hmm. in the many lights that, you know, they, they really have. And I thought it was interesting that 
you know, you do say like you're, you did just say that like he went and he would get you food. And like, he was like, I don't want to say the godfather of the, of the neighborhood, but he was like, he was well, like this, you know, this he guy, was a, he was a kid then. Right. And, it's, so, and it's he was this, like a brother figure yeah. for that time. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it's like this, um, this essence of like, which I think that we're losing now as like in New York, but like this, like looking out for your people, looking out for solidarity. Yeah. Solidarity, looking out for your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. This is, it's like a, I don't, and, and as I mean, not to go on a completely different topic, but as um, more and more neighborhoods are becoming more gentrified and like, Ooh. we're losing these, um, these communities, these, these tight, close knit, um, you know, historical. Love. Yeah communities that have been together for a very very long time exactly like even in your piece you you reference that like washington heights it's this it's little dr it's so like affectionately known as like yeah. you know like the like el campo kind of thing yeah. and for those of you who yeah. don't know it's like the, it's like the country like it's like the, <laughs> that's what it is and it's just it's just one of those things that um i feel like we're losing and and it's really nice that your piece brings that up yeah i want to respond to that quickly and yeah there is a you know the neighborhood as i got older and i've become more successful quote unquote uh feelings have changed towards me yeah, right but when i was a kid growing up and i was playing basketball and i was in high school and i was in college you know the neighborhood did protect me mm -hmm. right they they did oh listen this is about to go down you need to go or or you got a problem with ruben you got to deal with me first mm -hmm. right so there was this sense, like, they, they looked out and they protected me. Um, and I think we are losing that. I blame it on rap culture. Really? <laughs> <laughs> but that's a wow. sense. Not hip-hop, rap. That's not rap. That's a a, made, rap. That, made that distinction. Not hip-hop, yeah. rap. Um, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> I want to I know. I'm really curious. When you told Lefty, I love you, I can't do this shit, what did he respond? Because I know that you he were very he, concerned. He said, yeah, I love you, my brother. All good. I got this. Really? Yeah, go take care of your family. And then he he went. Did he yeah. kill the guy? No. Oh, oh, is that too personal? Is that like too much? No, he did not. Oh, I'm sorry. He's committed other crimes that he's in jail for now. Right. Um, but that night, no. Okay. No. Okay. You're like that night, nothing happened. I get. I don't know what happened other nights, but that night, no, that didn't nothing happen. Happened Speaking of this particular incident, <laughs> were you were you afraid? Like that he would? Nah. No? You that he would. That he would like commit the act of, you know, shooting yeah, the that's guy? Yeah, that's why I left. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, nah, man, too real. Let's get too real. I was like, I'm not doing this shit. I'm out. Excuse <laughs> me, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm out. You know, I mean, this was, you got to understand. I mean, the context is, you know, you know, my brother was, it was the only time that you have a room full of 30 guys from the streets. I walk in and I couldn't, I just started bawling, crying uncontrollably it just watershed of tears and it was just understood that you know that's 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 a natural reaction so i lost my train of thought but with lefty um i lost my train of thought <laughs> well, yeah. well since we're on the topic of your brother how is yeah. your brother now actually i'm wondering uh, okay so my brother is currently serving 18 years in a maximum security federal prison. Oh shit. Sorry uh, to hear that. Yeah, so sorry. For uh for crimes. We'll keep it a crime. Yeah. Mm. Um and uh 
yeah, he's he'll be released in another eight years. Wow. So it's been 10 years already. Yeah. How is your relationship now with him? You know, in we write letters. Uh, I just saw him about uh, two months ago. I went to visit him. He's in mm -hmm. West Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, so I went down to West Virginia <laughs> um, and visited him. Um, you know, it is, it is, you know, I miss him. Obviously, I miss him dearly. I wish he was here. Um, our family wishes he was here. Mm -hmm. But he's a strong guy and, you know, he doesn't, he realizes that he has to do his time. Thankfully, he's strong because there's a lot of people who are, you know, they get mad at their family for not writing them enough letters or, you know, he takes full responsibility for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I should be a little more involved. But he's always like, Ruben, you know, I know you love me and you make sure I have money in my commissary and we that's good. all I need. Your grad, <laughs> your brother, oh, you can't help but kind of love him. Yeah. The way that you speak about him, the way that you speak about your relationship. Yeah. When we were in class, everyone kept saying, like, I just love your brother. Yeah. <laughs> we, we all made a note to like be like, yo, Rube, next time you get to speak to your brother, let him know he got about 20 yeah. people over yeah. here like a who little, are throwing him love. Little, little fan, fan club. club. Yeah, yeah, for real. Well, it's, it's funny to this day when I go visit my mom, all the old neighbors call me by my brother's name. Oh, oh good to see you. And I'm like, do you look like him like physically? We we look exactly the same. Oh, oh my gosh. That makes sense. <laughs> There's another one. Um, I've actually been, <laughs> I've been stopped by his friends and... Oh. and Wow. Like, oh, you got out? They were like, yo, Al, what up? And I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm his brother. They were like, oh, you looked a little taller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, snap. I don't think you're going to like that comment, though. I <laughs> know, I know. But, uh, so, yeah, apparently we look a lot alike. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, yeah, he's, uh, oh, so, so the neighbors to this day, they they ask about him and, and everybody, you know, he got a bit of a raw deal for this. I don't think he should have got 18 years. He wasn't that involved with this group of people. Um, the, the, federal government says differently but i know the truth and he just wasn't um so he got a raw deal but the neighbors all just you know they 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 miss him a lot oh, yeah yeah, yeah. Well, and i'm like i'm like a side note can i um actually ask you this is a question that's been uh like burning within me yeah. um you know you your your bio talks about you going to law school we've spoken about it several mm -hmm. times but i've never actually had the opportunity to ask you yeah. um was all of this growing up in washington heights um you know watching you know the things that your your brother uh, partook in um and your friends and other people in the neighborhood that all are is all of this at the end of the day do you believe motivation um or what motivated you to going in to becoming a lawyer or you know are there other things about that i think so i think that you know initially like most kids i wanted to be a basketball player or some athlete mm -hmm. right that was my first dream mm -hmm. and then you know i don't know why i didn't look up to idolize people in the streets i don't know why at the same age i just had this feeling that i wanted to be a lawyer mm -hmm. um when i went to high school the family that i connected with their father was a lawyer mm -hmm. so all my internships in high school and college were at law firms and I, you know, I believe in energy. I believe in the universe. And I think that was not coincidental. Um, so that kind of allowed me to learn, be in this environment. And absolutely, my upbringing, when, you know, when you're stopping frisked, you know, when you come home from school and you walk out of your building and I'm literally thrown against the wall and, and patted down yeah. um, every day almost, 
um, because I lived in the building that I lived in and yeah. there was so much activity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because they found money on me and they say, you couldn't time, have that. Right. <gasps> right. I'm going to arrest you. I'm like, well, I work. That's mm-hmm. fucked up. Well, where's yeah. your pay stub? So I learned at a young age to carry a pay stub with me because if I had two, three hundred dollars in my pocket, they were questioning it. Yeah. And, and they could take me in. And mm-hmm. well, you know, I couldn't afford an attorney. What was I going to do? Mm-hmm. It was his word against mine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fucked up. Yeah. So, yes, I think my upbringing absolutely motivated uh, just a sense of justice and and writing the system. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned a lot of your brother <clears throat> kind of like was like you you can't be a part of this life. Like you have to be part of you have to do your thing. You have to go to school and and like he wanted something better for you. So do you think that that was also influential in you like not idealizing the street life so much and that like you looked up to your brother yes but you also listened to him yeah i mean he was definitely like this this anchor and him you know reinforcing you know i I think i don't know if i mentioned in this piece but in another piece you know him you know he was in a gang when he was younger just a local gang it wasn't anything big uh something that him and his friends started and he had these beads that were real cool And so I, I wore them. I took them and I wore them for a while. <laughs> the I don't beads. know if I mentioned it in this piece or in another one. I think no, it, it, was, yeah. it is this yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the beads. Mm-hmm. And I remember him. You know, I was 12. He was only like 18. And he literally like almost started crying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he's like, yo, like this this isn't for you. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm yeah. saying? He's like, we have, like you find me, you go talk to Lefty or you go talk to these guys. And like, he said, you know, we're your gang. You know, we take care of you. Um, and he's like, wear them around the house. But don't wear them outside. <laughs> yeah, I think that's remarkable because um, I don't want to generalize, but I've met a lot of people that are involved in drug dealing and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And they have siblings and they usually take them with them, like yeah. small children. Yeah. to And they watch and you know to what I'm saying? Them, yeah, them. and it's kind of like... Family business at a point. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to go into these. Maybe. But, I yeah. mean, also, you know, my mom, we grew up in a strong, you know, we're first generation. So, like, my mother didn't know what drugs were. Really, she did not know, mm-hmm. right? Like, they came from the Dominican Republic. And it was just a different time when they were growing up. Uh, so, I think that we had a big family, aunts, uncles, mostly the women who raised us. And I think that, you know, we like, we had a good, we were good people. He was a good person. So, while he was doing these things, because you're in New York, and that's just the way it was in the early 90s. Mm. Um, at the end of the day, he's a good person, right? And so he knew that that this wasn't the way, right? He just he knew this wasn't the way. That it was his life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So what would you like the listeners to take away from your piece? Be you. Be authentic to yourself. Be unapologetically you, right? And that's the only way that you're ever going to fit in. Like if you fit in with yourself and if you love yourself, if you love people, then everything in the end works out. Um, you know, this was my story. Everybody else has a story that they that they have. It might be different, but we all have a story, something that we've had to overcome, and this is mine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thank you guys for, for listening. I'm grateful to be here and sit down and talk with you guys. I'm grateful to uh, have you. So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you. I've learned so much. 
eventually so, when you turn this into a book we will all be the first ones in line along with our listeners to go i want a signed yes. copy thank you oh yeah don't forget yes. us Same. when you go and do your thing personal not 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 just like your name or something i want like a nice dear karen <laughs> <laughs> will do all right everyone thank, thank you. you so much Ruben. well that's all that we have for tonight and that's it, guys. That's the end of season one. Can you guys believe it? No. <laughs> I can't. I'm going to cry. I'm slightly heartbroken. Slightly? slightly. <laughs> well, I know that I'm coming back next season. Yeah, so absolutely. All you guys of us. Better, better believe we you're going to be hear returning. me. Mm-hmm. The dream team. All of us. Mm-hmm. Guess who's no, And Samantha. <laughs> yeah, send me. Yeah. I'll be around editing. <laughs> but don't you guys worry. We'll be back in mid-September. And back with more stories. In the meantime, you can catch up on past episodes on our website, lifeoutloudpodcast.com. You can submit true stories uh, also at our website, lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Lastly, we just want to say thank you to our writers this whole season, to our sound engineers and editors who have worked tirelessly to fix all of our mistakes as hosts. Um, Our episode writers, our website developer, everyone. There's a lot of people behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. Yes, yes. totally. We are so, so grateful. Yes. Thank you all so of them. much. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, we have to thank our listeners. Without you guys, we really wouldn't be anything. Thank you so much. Good we'll night. see you in September. Good see night. Ya. Bye. See Bye. you in September. Bye. <laughs>